So today we are uh, continuing in a three-week series that is entitled Hope. And rather than being so much just about hope, it's more about a journey towards hope. A journey that all of us are on that biblically begins with suffering, that begins with hardship, that begins with pain. But it's a journey that all of us are invited on and are brought on in different ways. It's a journey that uh, Paul describes in Romans chapter 5, and it's these three verses, Romans 5, verses 3, 4, and 5, that we're going to be looking at over these three weeks. Now, this journey is described in this way. This is what Paul writes. He says, and not only that, but we also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. So the journey we're on is, last week we talked about, what does it mean when Paul says that suffering produces endurance? What does that look like? What does that mean? Today we're talking about what does it mean when we say that endurance produces character? And finally, what does it mean when we say next week character produces hope? What is this journey towards hope that all of us are on? And as we enter into it, I invite you to pray with me. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would encounter us exactly where we are. We come in here with different hopes, with different dreams, with different pain, with different forms of suffering. And I ask, Lord, that today you would open our minds and hearts as to how you are working and redeeming that in each of our lives, in each of our stories. And we pray for this and trust in this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so as we said last week and as a recap, suffering is not something that a few of us here are going through right now. Suffering is something that all of us are journeying in and journeying through in some degree or another. So we said last week, suffering can actually come when you think about it in different forms and in different ways. It's weird to say this, but it's true. Some of the suffering that exists in your life and in my life, we're actually the authors of our own suffering, or we're authors of the suffering of other people, right? If you're somebody that might say, well, my suffering, for instance, we said, is, is due to the fact that finances are really tough, finances are really difficult right now, they're really tight, And the reason for that, when you pull back and look at it, is that you do what many Americans do, which is decide you need the vacation and the car and the right zip code and everything else, no matter what comes in, until you live for years above what comes in and live and build up credit card debt, and now it's time that you have to deal with that. Well, that suffering is real. There's no sense where I'm taking that away and saying, well, so that's not real suffering. It is. But it's a kind of suffering that we are authoring and have authored ourselves. And part of the change God wants us to make is be able to look at that and be able to understand it. Or, for instance, if you're someone who is saying that that the suffering in my life is through relationships that aren't going well. Maybe my marriage, maybe with my kids, maybe with my parents, maybe with my siblings, maybe with a lifelong friend, maybe with a person I'm dating, that that relationship isn't good. Normally, when people come and talk to you, who are going through that, they are experts at how the other person is causing all kinds of problems that are contributing to the conflict, right? We are experts on how our spouses contribute to the conflict that exists in our marriage. We're experts at what our siblings do or our parents have done that creates dysfunction in our relationships and in our life. But rarely is this world like a Star Wars movie where there's the clear good guys and the clear bad guys. Usually in every kind of conflict, there are two people involved in it and both have to start owning up to what have I done to contribute to the difficulty that we're going through. 
There is a kind of suffering, and all of us have it, and all of us do this because we are broken people, where we are authoring our own suffering or we are authoring the suffering of people around us. And we've got to see that. But of course, that's not the only kind of suffering. We said last week that there's also a suffering that exists because we live in a broken world and are surrounded by broken people. Suffering that may exist like that is that we are the victims of that. We may have been abused. We may have been cheated upon. We may have financial hardship not because of our own doing, but because our company went through something called downsizing, and we lost our job, and it is causing all kinds of hardship in our lives. Maybe because even though we have uh, exercised and eaten the right way and tried to do the right things, a diagnosis comes in that says it's terminal. There's all different kinds of ways that suffering enters into our world where we can have our breath taken away by how painful it is. And we didn't actually contribute to it. And as we said last week, part of God's story is the promise that that suffering will be redeemed. Right? That Jesus is not immune to that. That God isn't sitting in heaven today looking at your suffering going, it must be tough. Hope you can make it through it, you know, but I'm in heaven and it's good up here. That's not what God's saying at all. That Jesus engages suffering, enters into a broken world, experiences that suffering to the point that he dies a, a, a torturous death on a cross. But the promise that's in front of us that allows us to endure when suffering moves to endurance is the idea that when that boulder was rolled in front of the tomb and Jesus' dead body was in there, it was not the end of the story, but that a new season was beginning. When we say God redeems suffering, we're not saying the kind of bad bumper sticker Christian theology that you might hear, which is, well, God brought this about for a reason, or in the end, you're going to learn to be thankful for what it is you're going through. That is not helpful, and it's not true, and it's not right. That minimizes pain. We're talking about how God in Jesus enters into suffering and says that that suffering will be redeemed and transformed. And so we endure suffering. Whether we're the cause of it or whether we're the victims of it, we endure suffering because of the promise that it will not be the end of our story. That's how we endure. Okay? Suffering produces endurance. But today we're invited to take the next step on this journey, which is that endurance produces something as well. It produces character, as you see here. Character. What does that mean? Well, the Bible, dis- I mean, the, the dictionary. Uh, defines character as the aggregate of our traits and personalities. It's the aggregate, the, the sum total of what's inside you that makes you, you. Okay? We all have character. There are people of good character. They have great stuff inside of them. And character is not, by the way, what other people think of you. Right? Character is who you are when no one else is around. It's what you do when you think you're not going to get caught or seen. Who you are in those moments is a lot more about your character than how other people see you when you're on display, when you're in public, okay? And so there are people of good character, and we have good character, and then there are people of bad character. Character is not a good or a bad thing. Most of us, including myself, have parts of both of them, right? We've got good parts to our character, and we've got bad parts to our character. If you're not in touch with what the bad parts of your character are, talk to the people who love you. They will be able to tell you what the bad parts of your character are that are less than what God desires for your life. We all have good parts of our character and bad parts to our character. But what Paul is saying here is that when we endure suffering, 
as we do so, God gets involved with us on the inside and actually starts reworking our character, starts changing us from the inside out. There's kind of a question of, can people really change? Can people really become different? Can people really be transformed? And the answer to that is yes. Yes, they can. Yes, we can. And some of how we are reworked and rewired and our character is transformed is that when we enter into suffering, God can, can, can build our character. Now, how does that happen? Well, just like we said last week with endurance, this is not just a passive process for you and I, right? We said that endurance, when we're suffering, that we have to choose not to give in to despair. We have to choose to endure because of the promise of God. And in the same way, when we want our character, or when Paul's talking about our character being built up or being changed, it's not about us sitting back going, okay, God, change my character. But that you and I actually are invited into a process where our character can become different. And it's a question that I think we have to ask ourselves. It's a question I want you to think about this morning, and it's a question I want you to think about in your life throughout the week. And it's this. It's a very simple question. The question I want you to think about is that when you see what is hard or painful or difficult in your life, is to ask the question, Lord, how do you want me to grow as a result of this experience? How do you want me to grow as a result of this experience? Think about the suffering in your life today and think about that question. How do you want me to grow as a result of this experience? Now, a couple of things about that question. That is not the first question we ask when we go through suffering. It's a hard question to ask. And it's not the first question we should ask when we go through hard times. But it is a question that eventually we need to move towards. Let me give you an example as to why. The first question that people ask often when they're going through suffering is what? How do I make this stop? How do I make this go away? But if you take an example, let's take the suffering, and I want you to think about the suffering in your life. Take about, think about the examples of where we are the authors of suffering. If all we do is learn to change our behavior, we may not become different on the inside. We may not actually have our character built up at all if we don't ask the question, how do you want me to grow? Here's what I mean. Let's say you're one of those people, and you can apply this to different examples. This is just an example. Let's say you're one of those people that says, finances are really tough, and I have been contributing that. I have been spending more and living above my means and blah, 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 okay? It is possible for you to learn to change your behavior. You can take a financial class. You can plan out a budget with someone who's good with numbers. You can learn when to spend money based on paychecks or your bonus or what's coming in. You can learn to change your behavior to just spend a little bit less than what comes in, and, and everything, the problem will go away, Right? But if you're that person and you go in and say, Lord, what do you, how do you want me to grow as a result of this? You have to face some really hard stuff that's been about more than just modifying our behavior. You have to face the fact that God has called every single person here, every single one of us, to be extravagantly generous with what the resources that God has given to us. The reason God has given us what he has is so that you and I can be people who impact the lives of others. Others in this church through our giving, others in this city through our giving, others in this world through our giving. That call from God is very clear in all of our lives. 
And if we have to ask the question, wow, I'm spending more on myself than what comes in, and you say, Lord, how do you want me to grow in that? You have to face some hard facts about yourself. You have to face the facts that you might be far more materialistic than you are comfortable admitting out loud. You might have to face the facts that you are more self-centered than you would like to admit to other people out loud, and definitely more than you'd like to be seen as. But if you do that, and if you ask the question, Lord, what do you want me to see here? How do you want me to grow as a result of this suffering? You can actually have your kind of wiring on the inside changed. You can look at it and say, well, that's not how I want to be. That's not the kind of values I want to be living out. I want to be somebody that's following in the ways that you've called me to of extravagant generosity that's a part of changing other people's lives. And that can be where our values start to shift. Do you see that? That can be where it's not just about modifying our behavior, but actually asking the question can, can help us to engage and, and live out new values, kingdom values, to become different. Maybe if you're in a relationship that's really hard, asking that question of how do I need to grow from this, that's not accepting all the responsibility for the conflict in a relationship. But it is the way that you're going to figure out more than just how do I put a patch on this problem and fix it for the short run. How do I actually change to be the kind of person that can have deep, intimate, uh, powerful relationships, friendships, marriages, dating relationships in my life over the long haul? Because I actually have the ability to live out what it means to be somebody that's in deep relationship with other people. It's all about whether that's about our character being built up. How do you want me to grow? What would that be for you and where you are today? Now, the question of how do you want me to grow as a result of this experience gets even trickier with the other kind of suffering, right? The kind of suffering that we're not causing, but it is inflicted upon us. The kind of suffering that comes from living in a broken world. How do you, in fact, it almost seems offensive and unfair, with that kind of suffering, if you've experienced abuse or loss or illness or death uh, of somebody that you love, if you've experienced downsizing that's causing all kind of hardship, it's, it's, or if you've been cheated upon, it kind of almost seems offensive to have to ask the question, how am I supposed to grow from this, right? Because that makes it feel like you're trying to, to accept responsibility for it. And if you've been through that, if you've been a real victim of that, which we all have been in different forms, you're like, it's not my fault. Paul isn't writing this in order for our character to grow so that we accept blame. The suffering Paul experienced, for example, was because he was a Christian and witness to his faith. And so Paul, I don't think when he says your character can grow as a result of suffering, he wasn't saying, how do I grow and therefore going, so it's my fault. In fact, it's actually a position of strength over suffering, if you think about it. What he's saying is, this suffering, which is meant to intend harm for me, God can actually use to rewire me to change my character. It's a sign of strength in God's power over forces of suffering. It's like in the book of Genesis, the story of Joseph, where it says, uh, where Joseph looks at his brothers and says, what you intended for harm, God used for good. It's that kind of idea, right? If you can enter into suffering, even when you're not the cause of it, and say, how do you want me to grow? You're really looking at the pain or the suffering and saying that. What you intended for evil, God will use for good. It's a sign of strength. So that is a really difficult concept. To enter into suffering and say, how do you want me to grow as a result of it? So let me tell you a story. A story that I think illustrates what this means. 
It's a story that a friend of mine told me who is a pastor. His name is Tom Toole. Tom was the pastor of Memorial Drive Presbyterian Church in Houston many years ago. He then was the pastor of Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City uh, in Manhattan. Tom is actually going to be preaching here at the end of August, uh, kind of helping us kick off the year. He's a great preacher. He's a great guy. And he tells this story about how he was the pastor of Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church. So this is right in the heart of Manhattan. You've got to get this picture in your head. It's a big church right in the heart of Manhattan. And he said, what you learn when you go there is a significant percentage of your congregation has had a very kind of clear experience that they're living and working on Wall Street in Manhattan. A huge percentage of them went to prep school and boarding school. A huge percentage of them went to Ivy League schools. It's like you either went to Ivy League schools or you didn't. Okay, And if you didn't, it doesn't matter which one you went to. You just were not in the Ivies, right? That's not where you went. He said most of his congregation looked like they had walked straight out of a J. Crew catalog. The guys were like six foot three, and they all played lacrosse or rode or ran marathons. The women were all 92 pounds and on their smartphones all the time, and they ran marathons too. He said it was just this high-powered, high-functioning, pastel-wearing congregation all the time charging forward, smartphones out at every moment to be doing the deals that only people on Wall Street can do. So that's the world he was in. He said it's a good world. He, he, he loved it. It was just very unique, very different. So one day this kind of beautiful, perfect, awesome young couple comes to him and says, we would like to get married and we're engaged and we'd love for you as the pastor here to do a wedding. Now how weddings work in Manhattan Fifth Avenue, is that there's like three really cool venues that people want to get married at. And so what couples do is they find the venue and they secure it. And then they come to the pastor going, if you're available, you can do the wedding. If not, we're not giving up the venue, so we'll find somebody else who can do the wedding because the venue is what we're after. But this couple came to him and said, Dr. Tool, we'd love for you to do our wedding. And we're actually not getting married in the city. We're getting married at a family farm that the family of the bride has a couple of hours outside of Manhattan. He said, well, tell me more about that. She said, well, I, went to, I was born in a family. My parents both went to prep schools. They both went to Ivy League schools. They met at Harvard. They uh, worked on Wall Street. They were kind of high-functioning. I went to prep school. My siblings went to prep school. We met, I went to Harvard. I met my husband at Harvard. He played lacrosse there. He's six foot three. Uh, we go in, and we're getting married. We're both working on Wall Street, very successful, capable young couple. And she said, but just recently, my mother was diagnosed with early-onset Alzheimer's. And my parents' initial reaction to that was, we're going to power through it. we got the best medical care here in Manhattan. We're going to push through this. We're going to kind of do whatever we can do. But her mother's deterioration was very, very rapid. And very soon the family realized they couldn't just function through it. They couldn't do what they had always done. And so her mom and dad had made a decision to go and live on a farm that they had bought a couple hours outside the city. They said it was a farm that we had bought for vacations that we didn't have time to go to. We only went like once a year, and the whole time we were on our smartphones making deals while we are there. But my parents had moved out there over the last year. There's a good medical care facility, and it's a place where my dad and mom are both retired. My dad is now serving as a primary caregiver for my mother. And her deterioration is to the point that we'd like to have the wedding there in the hopes that she can participate. 
So Tom said that the day of the uh, weekend of the wedding came, the day of the rehearsal came, that's the day before the wedding, so on Friday, and he drove out there, and he said the farm was exactly what you would picture. It was this beautiful kind of manicured spot. The wedding was taking place in the backyard, this beautiful house on the bedroom where the mom and dad slept was the back bedroom overlooking the backyard. Um, They got there, he said it was exactly what he pictured. The groomsmen, bridesmaids, all of whom, Ivy League educated, high-charging, hard-moving kind of people. And that he then got to meet, during the rehearsal, the father of the bride. And what they determined that day was that the mother's deterioration was to the point, she couldn't even remember her daughter anymore, was that she was not going to be able to participate in the ceremony. But the dad came down and walked as part of the rehearsal, part of the practice, his daughter down the aisle. And, um, and Tom said that even the dad looked like a retired Wall Street guy. He was still fit and trim and in shape, but just had this kind of humble spirit to him. So at the rehearsal dinner afterwards, he got to sit next to the father of the bride, and they had a conversation about what he'd been going through. And he talked about just the absolute change that had happened in their life since his wife's diagnosis and with the deterioration of her health and her memory and now her physical health. He said that um, it had reminded him of the things that were most important, of faith and the faith that they had and of family. And that his life had become much simpler, but much more focused in his retirement and caring for his wife. The next day, the ceremony happened and everybody was there. It was a beautiful day and the, um, the congregation was seated. And the dad walked his daughter down the aisle to give her away. And it was kind of a wonderful scene in celebration. At the end of that, before the vows, everyone stood up. So every, no, you don't have to do it now, but everybody stood up in order to sing one song. And he said the most beautiful couple who went to Harvard and met there, and they were now married, were playing and leading the song on the microphone, and that they sang, and everybody stood to sing the song before the vows. And very quietly, inconspicuously, as everyone was standing, the father of the bride slipped out of the front row and walked back up beside the row of chairs and onto the back porch of his house and into the home. No one really noticed, didn't draw any attention to himself. And at the end of the hymn, everybody sat down. And Tom was getting ready to start the vows. Now, you've got to appreciate as a pastor the vantage point you have in a wedding. You see something different than anyone else sees. Because if we were doing a wedding here, all of you are in the congregation looking up here. The bride and groom are lost in each other's eyes and nothing else exists in the world. But as a pastor, you're the only one who's got the vantage point of looking back and looking out. And Tom said as he was there, as the vows were about to begin, the back door of the farmhouse slowly opened and the father of the bride emerged carrying his wife in his arms. Nobody saw, nobody noticed, drew no attention to themselves but he wanted his wife to be there as her daughter took her vows. Tom said that he began the vows as you do in a wedding with the husband, the, 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 the guy, repeating the vows to his future wife first. And that as he asked the fiancé to repeat his wedding vows after him, the father of the bride holding his wife whispered in response the vows into his wife's ear as they stood on the porch. I promise, I promise, before God and these witnesses, before God and these witnesses, to be your loving and faithful husband, to be your loving and faithful husband, in plenty and in want, in plenty and in want, 
in joy and in sorrow, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health, in sickness and in health, for as long as we both shall live. Suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. In the world of people running 100 miles an hour trying to make sure that they don't miss any opportunity, this individual had found more of a focus on what makes life important and worth living than he had ever found in all of his years of conquering the world in Manhattan. How do you want me to grow? How do you want me to grow? If you and I have the faith to move towards our suffering, to move towards our pain, to move towards our difficulty, and to ask that question, then the miracle of what God can do is actually mold and shape and build and change and transform us from the inside out, can build our character. And if we do that seriously this week, if you and I do the serious work this week of looking at our lives and looking at our conflict and looking at our pain and looking at our suffering and saying, Lord, what do you want me to learn? How do you want me to grow? Then we will walk back in here next week different from how we are today. And that is one step in a journey towards hope. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would continue with us on this journey. That you would use and redeem our broken places and the broken places in our world. That a part of that would be how you change and mold and shape us from the inside out. May we be a people who have the faith to take that step, and to ask the question of how can we grow? And we place the results in your hands. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we come to the end,